Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome back to The Commons. I'm your host, Brian Phillips. Uh, Here today, I am joined by Dr. Craig Bernthal, who is the author of Tolkien's Sacramental Vision. So we're going to be discussing uh, one of our very favorite uh, authors and figures uh, here around the Searcy Institute, J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, So thank you for joining me. And now, welcome, uh, Dr. Bernthal. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Okay, Brian. Thank you for, for having me. Yes. Now we have we've been planning this podcast for quite some time. I'm very excited about it, and it comes at an interesting time because um, uh, with my children, uh, we have four little ones, all ten and under, and we read The Hobbit not too long ago, and we're about a hundred pages left, I guess, in uh, the um, the first book in the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, so it comes at a good time for me. So again, thanks. Thanks for joining me. Uh, now, Craig, you have been an English professor at uh, Cal State Fresno for many years now, and uh, normally, I believe you teach Shakespeare and Renaissance literature. Is that correct? That's right. Okay, so so obvious question to me, at least. What what drew you to writing a book about Tolkien? Well, here comes a uh, cautionary and somewhat embarrassing tale, given what you've just told me about uh, your own children. Uh, to be honest, it was Peter Jackson's movies. Whoa, uh, wait, okay, we can edit that part out. <laughs> yeah, you can if you want to. Uh, <laughs> but I think I want to talk about that a little bit, actually. Um, way back when I was 18 or 19, I read uh, The Hobbit, and, and I enjoyed it, although I can't say that I was uh, really taken with it uh, to an immense degree. And I started on the Fellowship of the Ring, and this was probably 1971 when people were writing Frodo Lives as graffiti on campuses. <laughs> and uh, at the time, I was a geology student at Michigan Tech, and I have to say a very naive reader. 
uh, and frankly, quite suspicious of the 60s counterculture even then, and so suspicious of something that it liked as much as Tolkien. And of course, I, I later found out that Tolkien was uh, as wary of it uh, as I was, or perhaps he, uh, Paul would be the better word to apply to Tolkien. <laughs> anyway, I got to the part in the fellowship where Gandalf goes off the bridge at Khazad Doom, and I just couldn't go on with it. Mm. I probably went back to reading about igneous rocks. So uh, no Easter joy for me until about 30 years later. And I think what caught me in the movies, actually, was Tolkien's language. Hearing Tolkien's language, especially that first voiceover read by uh, Kate Blanchett, um, mm. she's reading words that actually were spoken by Treebeard. And uh, the beauty of that language finally got through my skull, you know, after having let it slide for a long time. And so I started reading The Lord of the Rings and uh, a lot of things about Tolkien, read his letters and read some of his other books. Well, I I am glad that you came back to it uh, because I, I really enjoyed your book. And the the title intrigued me right off the bat. And and granted, I I was catching your book after it's it's been published for it's been out for a few years now, um, yes. but your title captured me: Tolkien's Sacramental Vision. So let's dive right in. T tell us about that. What what is a sacramental vision, and how does Tolkien capture it? Simply put, a sacramental vision is the capacity to see the world as sacrament, as something which is created by God imbued with his imminence and points to him. Uh, it's a very, very old way of, of seeing the world, but one which lasted a lot longer, I think, than the modern uh, scientific view. Uh, a sacrament participates in the reality it points to. It's a vehicle of God's grace, God's love in action. The most obvious instance, I think, for most of us is the real presence of Christ's body and blood and the bread and wine of the Eucharist. It doesn't just symbolize Christ, though it does that. It is Christ, fully participating in the sacrament and fully embodied in it. And it conveys grace. We hope to become more Christ-like when we take communion. Mm -hmm. Now, the Catholic Church, of course, has seven sacraments, including baptism, Holy Communion, the Rite of Reconciliation. All of the sacraments both point to God, participate in his reality, and convey grace in especially powerful and specific ways. So to say that the world is sacramental doesn't make the idea of the sacrament so general as to be meaningless. And this is actually something I worried about a little bit when I was writing the book. But I think it's rather to say that there is a general grace in the glory of God's creation, which we can recognize and which is available to us. Gerard Manley Hopkins maybe expresses this as well as anyone when he says the world is charged with the grandeur of God. And what he means by that is it's it's electric with it uh, and full of it. And then he says it grows to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. So he gets that sacramental oil uh, into his idea of the entire world. So, you know, this vision of the world alive with spirit is very, very old, goes way back uh, to, the, to the early church and uh, was developed at a time in which we had not yet separated the natural world from the supernatural and then gone on to eliminate the supernatural. You know, we're, we tend to see things through this modern lens that makes that sharp division. Um, 
Tolkien doesn't have that. That's one of the fascinating things about Tolkien is he still possesses that medieval vision. Um, somehow it survives in him, despite the fact that he's uh, as much a resident of modernity as, as any of us. And it just flows naturally into his work. Uh, I think that uh, he captures it in a couple of different ways. Uh, first and most pervasively, he gets it through his incredible descriptions of landscape. And the second way he does it is through the unwinding of plot that has a sacramental pattern, which is easy to associate with specific sacraments, such as baptism, communion, confession, confirmation. So let's take landscape description first. Tolkien spends an immense amount of time and energy just, just describing what the hobbits see as they tramp mm -hmm. through the world, how they orient themselves, looking in one direction and another. You never get the sense that the world is anything but glorious. Uh, even T Mordor reminds us of that glory by diminishing it so drastically. Right. Um, so, you know, think of things that are some of the most magical, at least for me. Goldberry's laundry day and the steady rain falling on Tom Bombadil's house and garden. Rivendell, especially the feast where Frodo sees the tableau of Aragorn, Arwen, and Elrond. Frodo and Sam, especially at the crossroads where the sunlight in a line momentarily lights on the head of this king. The head was on the top of the statue and had been knocked off by orcs. And now the, the rocky head it lies in the road where the orcs have, you know, knocked it. And it's ringed with flowers like a reverse crown of thorns. Um, this is a kind of sacramental vision in the vein of Hopkins, writing about kingfishers that catch fire or windhovers, uh, you know, a kind of hawk that becomes Christ. I spend a, a, quite a bit of time on that, but I spend most of the time in the book analyzing plot that has a sacramental pattern. I argue, for instance, that you can see the elements of baptism in Frodo's near drowning by Old Man Willow, or in the burial and resurrection, you might say, of Mary and Pippin when they're enclosed by uh, Old Man Willow's roots. You see a kind of Pentecostal baptism scene when Frodo escapes the Black Riders at the Ford of Bruinen as they are washed away by the raging river, which has taken on the shape of white riders with flames on their heads. I love those flames, uh, you know, thanks to Gandalf. And of course, many writers before me, such as Brad Berzer at Hillsdale, or Ralph Woods at Baylor, have commented on the connections between Christ's Via Della Rosa and Frodo and Sam's path up Mount Doom. And they, as well as others, have commented on how much like communion bread uh, is elvish, Lembus, the way bread that, that uh, Sam and Frodo eat. And uh, how much like uh, communion wine is the Miravore, this elvish mead that, that promotes vitality. So there are a lot of specific sacramental connections. Uh, now, there was something you mentioned near the beginning of, of that answer um, that I'd like to go back to for a second. Sure. You mentioned how... Tolkien manages to um, almost maintain this medieval vision, even though he's he's modern, you know, very much like we are. Is, is there anything that you think you can point to that might unveil how how was he able to do that? How was he able to live in his time and yet um, still maintain that medieval vision? 
Well, I think that, you know, people talk about this as being a specific part of a Catholic vision of the world. And I think even if you're Catholic, however, it's it's hard to hang on to it. But I do think that this is how the Catholic Church does see the world and does want its, um, <laughs> you know, the people who are Catholic to see the world. So Tolkien had a very unusual childhood in that uh, he lost his father. Uh, I forget exactly how old he was, but almost too young to remember his father. Mm-hmm. His mother brings him up uh, as Catholic after she converts uh, to being Roman Catholic. And he grows up in this rather magical area, you know, in Birmingham, where John Henry Newman has established the Oratorio, and his mother is uh, associated with a priest, uh, Francis Morgan, in that Oratorio. And Tolkien, from a very early age, uh, and then, of course, his mother dies, and he's orphaned, brought up almost by Father Francis Morgan. So he has a um, total immersion in the Catholic Church. And I think that that's what the biggest reason why uh, he probably sees the world in the way that he does. Mm-hmm. Now, in the opening lines of your introduction, you wrote that the, the Lord of the Rings, when it came out, was panned by academics and intellectuals, yet it's become one of the most popular works in the history of English literature. Uh, I think it, it ranks, was it second best novel uh, best-selling novel of all time. That's right. And then uh, The Hobbit is number four. And you also added in in the introduction that those who dislike Tolkien's work also tend to dislike both it and him intensely. <laughs> so that brings up a lot of questions in my mind, but let's start with this one. Why do you think Tolkien's work was so largely panned by academics and intellectuals? Yeah, that's... That's another huge question. I like your questions. Um, uh, it's a, it's really a sub-question of a couple others. And I, I think the bigger question is, why did we get such a profoundly messed up modern secular world? And where did that leave the arts and the humanities? Now, that is another podcast. Yeah, it, it is. But it, this is all part of that. And, uh, mm-hmm. and there certainly you know, has been a deep rejection of Christianity by faculties in secular universities and you know, English, English department faculties right up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, Christianity lives out its intellectual life in specifically religious universities, it seems to me, and often quite small ones. So the overall rejection of Christianity by modern faculties, especially in arts and humanities, has something to do with their antipathy to Tolkien. Yet, you know, the work of of some great Catholic writers like Flannery O'Connor, Gerard Manley Hopkins, uh, is still taught, is still highly regarded. So a simple rejection of Christianity doesn't seem to me to, you know, provide a, a complete answer. I think one of the things that distinguishes Tolkien's work, however, is that he's specifically writing about virtue and its public manifestation in the fulfillment of duty. Unlike O'Connor and Hopkins, he's not primarily concerned with a private revelation, but with the public enactment of moral decisions that do not require a lot of head scratching. In other words, he is primarily concerned with finding the courage to do what we know is right. Apparently, in modern lit, one is entitled to their private revelations. You know, you've got yours, I've got mine, it's, it's all okay. Uh, but it's when this gets into the public square that objections arise. And uh, Tolkien believes in virtue. 
it's public necessity and the way it ennobles the people who exercise it. He really believes in heroes and heroic duty. And uh, that at times we have to at least try to act heroically, even if we don't want to. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and I think, you know, going back to Peter Jackson, even he had to back off this idea uh, because he really transforms Aragorn's character in a way which I think is unfortunate. He makes Aragorn a kind of reluctant leader, whereas in the book he willingly accepts kingship as his destiny. Um, mm -hmm. Such a divided character in Aragorn, it, it suits our modern sensibility uh, that can only accept heroic obligation reluctantly. Um, and so that's a modernization. I'm not sure Tolkien would have liked at all. So I think you know part of this is a profound distrust of heroism. And Tolkien is going back to an old kind of writing, more like Spencer's The Fairy Queen. Uh, Tolkien is writing a heroic romance that sees her heroism as really a decent human potential instead of an illusion. A celebration of heroism is not po a popular theme in the academic world, which has decided to see the idea of heroism as a kind of propaganda victory, I think, over readers by sinister Western power structures, you know, that underlie literature. And I think that in Tolkien, they see that power structure very, very close to the surface, you know, so they want to, they want to see him as, as, as superficial. So I think uh, to make a shorthand sentence out of this, the Frankfurt School trumps Tolkien. Now, do you think that that also explains why um, they disliked him personally just as much? Uh, was it because of what his work represented? I think that's that's partly it. Um, you know, they criticize Tolkien for writing cardboard characters. They criticize him for writing in a faux biblical style. Uh, they say that he was really nuts because he created so many lang uh, you know, languages. Um, they go after him in all kinds of different ways. But uh, I think those are all very unfortunate criticisms and, and not well thought through. Tolkien's characters aren't cardboard. Uh, they do know the difference between right and wrong, so they're criticized as being one-dimensional as if living with a horrible moral ambiguity were the main criterion for being interesting and believable. And I think, by the way, that cultivating horrible moral and uh, horrible moral complexity is a great way to get off the moral hook altogether. Hmm. Uh, at any rate, as far as the writing goes, all I can say is I think he's a gorgeous writer who has a particular knack for describing nature and a sense of humor which is good-natured rather than, than cutting or cynical. And Tolkien is, is not interested in someone trying to navigate moral ambiguity so much as he's interested in um, people finding the courage to do what they know is right. That's where his characters have their interest. And, uh, and he does that very, very well. Uh, I can't think of a modern writer who examines the moral challenges of someone who knows what they should do but doesn't want to do it uh, any better than Tolkien. Hmm. Um, there, there's another aspect of this too. Um, I think that, uh, you know, Alistair McIntyre says that in order to have meaning, see meaning in life, you have to see it as part of a narrative, a grand narrative. Um, 
if we see our lives as part of a narrative, and certainly Tolkien does, there is a cosmic narrative that uh, the Lord of the Rings fits into. Um, it gives our life meaning, but it also restricts our freedom. Um, Tolkien accepts that restriction of freedom in return for meaning. Uh, but I think that our world is a bit schizophrenic on this point. We want maximum liberty and deep meaning at the same time. Uh, we want to have, for instance, theories in literature that don't want to take moral stands, that don't want to pin down meanings, uh, that want to see ambiguity everywhere, because it allows us, you know, in a way to do what we want to do. Uh, I remember going through graduate school and finding so many deconstruction enthusiasts who said, well, this is, this is freedom, this, this is liberating. Well, it's liberating, but it's, it's liberating at the expense of all meaning. It's essentially nihilistic. And uh, people have a hard time negotiating that. You know, when I, when I teach Tolkien, I get the sense that my students love Tolkien because they really hunger for this meaning. Uh, and at the same time, they don't want their freedom restricted either. Maybe it's uh, maybe it's part of what makes us human. Maybe it goes back to the back to the Garden of Eden. I don't know, but I, I think the contemporary world has made this a a, a big uh, contradiction within its own mind and within the culture. Right. Now um, we've talked probably too much about those who don't like Tolkien, um, <laughs> but. What about uh, on the other side? You have people who absolutely love Tolkien's works and love him as well. Uh, so what do you think is the, is the draw to his work and to, to him personally? Um, yeah, that's, a, that's another good question. I, you know, I'm going to restrict myself to the Lord of the Rings here. Okay. Uh, because, you know, it has never seemed to me that the Lord of the Rings wouldn't necessarily be a great candidate for such a huge popular audience. Uh, it's not a fast-moving book. As I tell my students, it's, it's meant to be read at a walking pace. We tend to read everything too fast anyway, and The Lord of the Rings seems to resist that. Also, you know, although it, it clearly values heroism, Tolkien does not emphasize action scenes or battle, unlike in the Peter Jackson movies. What really does matter to Tolkien are the decisions that his characters have to make at the cusp of acting well or acting badly. I think the two most important elements in Tolkien's book are the way he captures our sense of wonder at the world. He makes us see it a bit like the elves do, and that's magical. And secondly, he captures the tension and resolution of moral decision-making. Hmm. All this means that he portrays life as having meaning, a meaning that goes straight through to the core of reality. And because the modern world has rejected that kind of meaning, people long for it. They long for it at the same time they long for the extreme liberty that makes it impossible. Uh, I, I, think, I think people love Tolkien because Tolkien offers them what they need. Hmm. Now, as far as liking him personally, um, I'll, I'll use a, an example. It's outside of Lord of the Rings, but one of the things that I found... Uh, made me love Tolkien, not, not just his writings, but there was this sort of, um, I was, I was enamored with him as a person, um, 
was seeing different sides of him in his writings, like uh, the Father Christmas letters. Uh, yeah. um, you, you really get to see that he's, he was not just an academic. Uh, he's also you know, a, a devout Christian, a devout Catholic, all, and, and uh, a devoted father as well. So um, I'm, I'm sure that all that has something to do with it as well, as you dive a bit deeper. Yes, yes. So, I mean, Tolkien, I don't think that very many people, you know, mo Tolkien's reputation popularly is probably mainly based on The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, but uh, mm -hmm. that, that is unfortunate because he has so much more to offer. And um, Tolkien as a person, to me, is a very interesting and attractive guy. You know, he... Uh, he did his duty, went off to war during World War I, didn't really want to, didn't consider himself to be a very good officer, actually, but, uh, but he did it. And, uh, you know, he has a full teaching load at, at Oxford, uh, something which would probably be enough to keep all of us, you know, mm -hmm. busy enough. And yet he's writing all the time. He has all of these writings that uh, have been tied into the Silmarillion that his son Christopher uh, keeps uh, giving us versions of, uh, especially recently. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and yet he has... He really takes all this time to write letters uh, to people who write to him, to his to his children, some beautiful letters to his children, and of course the Father Christmas letters. And I wonder, you know, how how he ever found time to do it for one thing. And uh, he's not such a bad artist either. He's, he lavishes time on the right. art that he puts into those letters, and there's a sense of of fun and joy in them, which mm -hmm. uh, which is really engaging. I wonder if he was uh, such a successful writer because, as C.S. Lewis said, he didn't he didn't sleep very much. Well, that could be, uh, which is which is another amazing thing. I understand that there are people who don't need that much sleep, and uh, it seems that Tolkien was one of them. Right. I, what, I'm trying to remember what it was that Lewis said. I think it was he used to uh, joke with him and and say that he was afraid to go to bed. Is that right? I hadn't heard yes. that. <laughs> Yeah. Now, let, let's back up and um, come back to the uh, sacramental vision of Tolkien. Uh, can you give us some examples of how that vision is played out in the various tales of Middle Earth? Which, of course, that goes beyond The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, but, but you can confine yourself to whatever you'd like to. <laughs> well, I think, the, I think the place to start is the Silmarillion, uh, which is what I do in the book with Tolkien's creation stories with um, Ainur, God, or Eru, um, um, excuse me, Eru, uh, organizing a heavenly choir to sing the idea of the universe into existence. Mm. Uh, and if, you, if you believe in the Trinity, then you see God as an inherently communal being uh, and self-giving uh, as, as part of his, his inner nature from the very beginning. Uh, so the idea that uh, God would share the joy of creation is very logical. Uh, uh, so Tolkien shows us that uh, in the Silmarillion creation stories. And I think that he draws very much on the prologue to the Gospel of John, uh, mm -hmm. Colossians, where we see Christ as the Logos, uh, the Word of God creating the universe. And in the Old Testament, we see Lady Wisdom in Proverbs and Wisdom in the Book of Wisdom performing the same function. Uh, 
Uh, so God's word, as he directs his heavenly choir of angels, or Ainur, is woven into the very fabric of the universe in Tolkien's myth. There's no division between natural and supernatural there. That, as I said, forms the basis for the medieval Christian understanding of the nature of reality. It's at the basis of Tolkien's creation of Middle-earth, which is you know, just the name for the world that appears in Tolkien's favorite uh, Norse mythology and, and works such as Beowulf. They refer to the world as Middle-earth. Uh, so as Isaac Newton would say, we have gravity in the world. Uh, so Tolkien would say the world follows a sacramental pattern. It's just, it's just there baked in. Uh, Tolkien very directly explains how this works in a poem that he wrote for C.S. Lewis called Mythopoeia. Uh, Lewis's view of the world at the time, Lewis had not become a Christian at the time, and he and Tolkien were discussing this continually. I would say that Lewis's view was basically scientistic, that he had taken materialism as a sort of metaphysical um, basement for his view of the world. So Tolkien really describes Lewis's words in that poem like this. He says, You walk the earth and tread with solemn pace one of the many minor globes of space. A star is a star, some matter in a ball, compelled to courses mathematical amid the regimented cold inane where destined atoms are each moment slain. In other words, you know, it's just all material. It's just all following some kind of math. Uh, but Tolkien's rejoinder is that we see far more in the world than this. We see it through language, which is itself a myth, a myth that contains truth. A person not only has the right, but his right to see the world in a way which goes beyond that, um, in a way which Tolkien believes God intends us to see it. So Tolkien's rejoinder is that the person who sees uh, the world correctly uh, does so like this, quote, he sees no stars who does not see them first of living silver made that sudden burst to flame like flowers beneath an ancient song, whose every echo after music long has since pursued. All right. Um, now, let, to fill this out a little bit more, I could go back to the Lord of the Rings. If you, if that's okay, <laughs> of course. Um, so let's let's see how it works with baptism in the Lord of the Rings, and start with water and its natural properties. Uh, we associate water with getting clean, with what we need to drink to stay alive, the satisfaction of thirst, with transition when we cross a river, with uh, growing plants, with death by drowning, all of these mundane properties of water are present in the Lord of the Rings, but none of them is just mundane, as they would be for believers in H2O only. Uh, for Sam, crossing a river means coming of age as he leaves the Shire. For Mary Pippin and Frodo, water is an entry into death and out of it in the adventure with uh, Old Man Willow. And that same entry in and out of the grave occurs at the tomb of the Barrow White, which is structured uh, just like an early church baptism actually when they get out the 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 hobbits are naked and they they run around in white clothes exactly uh, what happened during a, a early christian baptism was that people went into the water naked and they were they were, had white gowns put on them when they came out um, 
we see it again for Frodo, it's a washing away of evil as he faces the Black Riders at the Fort of Bruin, And it has the same association for all of the hobbits and Goldberry's washing day. All of these have specific baptismal associations. Baptismal is the saying, goodbye to one life and a symbolic death by water and rising into a new Christian life. It's the washing away, away of sin and evil. Let us take another very human and universal event, the giving of gifts. Uh, we see a very elaborate and meaningful example of this when the fellowship leaves the realm of Galadriel, Lothlorien. Each member of the fellowship is given a gift, but with a very specific Christian inflection. As the priest at my church says, God gives us grace for us, but he gives us gifts for others. And that is what Galadriel's gift-giving captures. She gives gifts that allow each of the members of the fellowship to pursue their specific vocation. Sam gets his seeds for restoring the Shire as its master gardener. Uh, the vial of light uh, is given to Frodo so that when he and Sam encounter Shelob, they can survive that. Part of the sacrament of confirmation is receiving the specific gifts of the Holy Spirit that allows one to achieve their specific mission or vocation as a Christian. Different gifts to different people. The gift-giving scene with Galadriel is sacramentally a confirmation of each person's role in the fellowship. These gifts promote the life, the giving of self in a specific way. Um, I am not... I have not worked this out in some of uh, some of Tolkien's other other things, and I'm not sure that it would all work that, that it would work out necessarily in some of the books that uh, Christopher Tolkien has recently published, uh, such mm -hmm. as the Children of of Hurin. I'll have to take a look at those and see. That's that is very interesting. I um, I want to pursue one specific section or, or chapter. I think it's chapter 10 in your book Okay, that of course relates to all of this, but it's specifically, uh, it's about, uh, the Eucharist or uh, as it's titled Tolkien's Eucharistic messengers. Um, that was, a, that was fascinating to me. And I, I wanted to give you a chance to elaborate on what that means exactly. Uh, so who were Tolkien's Eucharistic messengers, and, and can you tell us about the role they played in his writing? Well, there are a, a great many of them. Um, uh, I think that every member of the fellowship, in one way or another, could be seen as a Eucharistic messenger, and uh, and more people besides Thad and Eowyn. Um, the essence of being that uh, kind of character, I think, is uh, is that you you you're actually engaged in self-sacrificial love. That's the essence of the Eucharist. Um, if you look up the word messenger in the OED, it will tell you that a messenger isn't just someone who bears a message, but someone who has an errand. And these are, of course, closely related because the errand can can contain the message. So the death and resurrection of Jesus was an action, but also a message about what love is. Uh, kenosis, the emptying of oneself and seeking the good of the other, and the willingness to endure suffering in order to do that. It becomes a statement of God's love for the world, and also of what love is supposed to be for us. We don't like to let go of things, and the grasping hand is a great image in Tolkien's work for what has gone wrong. Eve's hand grasping at the forbidden fruit, 
Feanor and the Silmarillion, the great artisan elf, grasping the Silmaril he has created instead of sharing it, when sharing it is about the only thing that could save the world. And of course, we've got um, Gollum, Sauron grasping the ring of power in an attempt to grasp the entire world. Um, the martyr, the witness, who is willing to let go of even his own life to help others, he's the Eucharistic messenger. And of course, in The Lord of the Rings, many characters demonstrate it. Mary, when he goes to the defense of Eowyn at the Battle of Pelennor Fields, Gandalf entering death during his fight with the Balrog and then coming back, uh, Aragorn doing very much the same kind of thing as he enlists the army of the dead. It's a little bit like the harrowing of hell. But, you know, Frodo is certainly uh, at the center, giving himself away completely, inch by inch, as he marches up Mount Doom. Certainly in Tolkien's life, the central Eucharistic figure is his mother, uh, whom he referred to as a genuine martyr for the Catholic faith, since she endured being disowned by her own family for converting, and since she did so much to make sure her two boys were brought up in the Catholic faith. Uh, he felt she died of exhaustion as much as, uh, as, much as anything. Hmm. Secondarily, I think for Tolkien, as for C.S. Lewis, the enlisted men they served with during the First World War were examples of great heroism and self-sacrifice, people who just quietly did their duty and often died doing it. The First World War had an immense impact on both of these men, and neither of them were cynical about it. Uh, not like Siegfried Sassoon or Wilfred Owen, two other men I think that they would have admired in many ways, and I certainly do. Uh, but uh, Lewis directly criticized Wilfred Owen. Uh, both Lewis and Tolkien felt that they'd fought in a war that had to be fought. Um, these men, you know, form part of the moral backbone of Tolkien's writing, his understanding of heroism. The kind of soldiers that Tolkien knew became part of Sam Gamgee. So uh, they knew Eucharistic messengers in their own lives, and, uh, and uh, Tolkien puts many of them into his books. Now, I have one last question, um, and it may actually be the most difficult question that I've asked you today. Yes. So here it goes. I hope you're sitting down. I am. <laughs> Do you have a favorite work of Tolkien? Uh, yes, yes, I do. And it, it's certainly The Lord of the Rings, where I think Tolkien captures this sacramental understanding of reality more thoroughly and vibrantly than uh, anywhere else. But I would like to say a few words about other works by Tolkien that I think are really wonderful and essential for understanding him. Okay. And uh, one is Leaf by Niggle, which is a delightful short story. Uh, although Tolkien said that he cordially disliked allegory, Niggle is one of the purest allegories I've ever read. And uh, unfortunately, not many Lord of the Rings readers know about it. Niggle is about subcreation, Tolkien's word for what any human creator does within the context of a world that has been created. Um, Tolkien sees artists, for instance, as partners in God's process of creation, to be created in God's image means that we are also creators, and God has given us this gift of participation. I think one of the fascinating things about Niggle is it's written um, not too long before Tolkien starts on The Lord of the Rings, you know, which is an immense project for him. And Niggle is about this, this artist who's trying to paint a forest, and he can't get past painting one leaf. 
He keeps working on that one leaf again and again. And it's so much like Tolkien who would, you know, niggle his way through the Lord of the Rings, uh, writing up to a certain point and then going back to the beginning and rewriting the whole thing, getting a little bit farther, going back to the beginning, rewriting the whole thing. I think when uh, niggle is Tolkien's laugh at himself um, in a way. Um, and uh, we, we get a sense perhaps of, you know, Nigel is very frustrated when people take him away from his, his artwork. Uh, neighbors come and pester him. They need help. Uh, people who he's invited come to visit him, and then he wishes they wouldn't have invited him. You get the sense of Nigel is a, a very busy professor in Oxford who would like to write his book, but he, people just won't let him get at it. Um, so uh, at any rate, you know, Niggles this artist. He can't get down to business. He doesn't know how to use his time. Uh, so in the story, we find it is fairly obvious. Niggle dies, and the, the the death is described as a long train trip. And when he gets to the end of the trip, he gets off at this train station, and he's taken to a hospital. He's admitted to the pauper's ward because he doesn't have any money. Well, the pauper's ward is purgatory. And, uh, and Nigel has brought no currency of good works along with him, so he's going to have to spend some time there. And uh, in Purgatory, he slowly and painfully learns how to use time. And it's basically like being in a monastery. Uh, and a good deal of what he learns about using time is, is how to let go of it. He learns how to, when he gets to the end of one task, to just drop it and then go on to the next one, as you would do in a monastery when the, when the bell rings. Um, and finally, as he makes progress and he, he, he's let out into the open air and, uh, he sees the picture that he's been working on his entire life. It has become real. God has given it reality and he's allowed to spend time in that picture. And his neighbor, who, uh, a very persnickety gardener who he's always uh, kind of feuded with is also there. And they work to complete the picture. They're very much like the Ainur in the Silmarillion working on completing the idea of what the universe will be like. Um, so one of Tolkien's points in it is that sub-creation, the work of the artist is a communal activity. He doesn't really seem to believe in the artist as the sort of romantic idea of the person out by themselves just creating out of their own head. It takes other people. And um, so Niggle's reconciliation with his neighbor is one of the wonderful things uh, in the story. Well, I, I confess that I have not read it. Uh, so, But I'm so glad that you took a few minutes to elaborate on that for us and, and to recommend it. it it's going to have to go to the top of my stack. My, oh, my, yeah. You will my never-ending stack. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and I, I might say just quickly a, a couple of uh, mention a couple of other things. Uh, and this is nonfiction. You know, Tolkien's work, the monsters and the critics, put Beowulf scholarship uh, on a whole new footing. It uh, it took it in an aesthetic direction before it had just been seen as a a sort of a source to mine some historical facts out of if you could mm -hmm. get at them. Um, it's a wonderful essay, and it, it gets it gives us a sense of what Tolkien cares about in fiction. But even better is his essay on fairy stories. Um, 
more than any other piece of writing, it tells you what Tolkien's own artistic aims were from the very beginning. And any critic who tries to say that Christianity is not part of Lord of the Rings is not only tone deaf, uh, but he either hasn't read this essay at all or he has you know, just unaccountably ignored it. For Tolkien puts Christianity at the heart of fairy tale. Uh, he, he, this is where he develops the idea of eucatastrophe, the, the mm -hmm. unexpected happy ending, which he describes as joy the emotion it gives rise to is joy as poignant as grief. Um, so the central defining feature of the fairy story for Tolkien is Easter-like joy, uh, the ultimate true myth or fairy story come true. And uh, I think that uh, it's just uh, totally consistent with Tolkien's letters about what he wants to do as a writer. And uh, there are so many people who want to, who like Tolkien, actually. They value Tolkien, but, but they, they're allergic to any Christian element in Tolkien. <laughs> I think this is a big mistake. That's going to be quite, a, quite an allergic reaction. Yeah. If paying attention, yeah. Um, well, Craig, thank you so much for taking the time to discuss this. Um, for our listeners, again, uh, the book is Tolkien's Sacramental Vision. And uh, I highly recommend it. Uh, Craig Bernthal, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to tell us more about it. Thank you very much, Brian. I enjoyed this a lot. Thank you. All right. Well, this has been The Commons, and uh, I'm your host, Brian Phillips, signing off here with my guest, Craig Bernthal, and uh, we will see you next time. Thanks so much. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.